a week of those habits, we we're in the very beginning. We were early on in Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2. We're going to Daniel chapter 12, all the way to the end. The final prophecy of Daniel is, is, a, is a section. It's, it's chapters 10, 11, and 12. Nine kind of gives a, a run into it. Uh, a, this is the final segment. It's in Daniel chapter 10. God tells Daniel that, look, heaven is defending the people. It's not always going to feel like this, but heaven is working on behalf of its people. I picked up a book once called The Disciple of John by a, a Christian author. And I, I bought this book. It was on a, on a sale table, and I, I read it, and, and it was okay. But on page two, it paid for itself. God's silence, it read, does not equal his inactivity. Meaning just because you don't hear what's going on doesn't mean something isn't going on. So Daniel prays in chapter 10 and he doesn't always hear something. But finally, an angel says, Gabriel says, look, Daniel, just keep trusting just keep keeping on. And we'll find that that becomes the theme of this final segment of Daniel. Now, chapter 11, Daniel chapter 11. Woo, woo. The most detailed prophecy in the book of Daniel, known to be the most difficult chapter in the book of Daniel. And if you want to ever cause a theology major to squirm, just ask him. So how do you understand Daniel 11? It's not impossible. But it makes sense that the devil would put a special target on the final, most detailed prophecy of the book of Daniel. If the entire book is a target, that he would especially put at the bullseye this final emphasis of 10 and 12. I think the devil hates Daniel chapter 11, but it also it is also difficult in the context that it is it is much more detailed and much more relevant. Uh, not, not relevant, uh, chronologically closer and more applicable to our time. Ah, you know, I said that wrong as well. Ah, it's, it's much nearer to our time than some of the other prophecies. Meaning that that prophecy, as most of the prophecies, the people before the prophecy or during had a difficult time coming to conclusions. They wrestled with it because prophecy, again, was never meant to prove that we could know the future. That's not the purpose of prophecy. So Daniel 11 is known to be difficult. It also has a wide range of interpretation. Let me just give you the context, a little bit of the context of Daniel 11. And it's going to set us up for, for 12. We're going to really just kind of jump right over 11. But Cambyses was the, was the prince of Persia. He was an aggressive warrior. And he pushed the boundaries militarily. I don't know if he loved 
the, the, the victory or if he loved the strategy or what it was, but he was very engaged. He was very military mindset kind of a leader. And, and so this is, this is the, the, the historical context of Daniel 11. He, he goes down to Egypt, he wages war, he's, he's victorious in, in, I believe, most fronts, and he's on his way back to the capital. And he's camped in the shadow of Mount Carmel. Wait a minute, we know about Mount Carmel. That's where the duel between Baal and the one true God of Israel that Elijah called for, that's where that happened. And it's also where the, where the, the, the valley, kind of a, a, a large flat area called Megiddo is, where Revelation will point out is the final conflict, the battle of Armageddon, Armageddon. That's where the Prince of Persia, Cambyses, is encamped, the shadow of Mount Carmel. And Daniel 11 then plays out using this historical event. And it plays it out to, to tell the story of the final battle, the battle of Armageddon. It doesn't use those terms, but it uses the Prince of Persia as a symbol of who is waging war against God. In the shadow of Mount Carmel, Cambyses is encamped, and history isn't exactly sure if it was accidental. Most, seem, most historians and theologians seem to decide that it was intentional. But Cambyses dies with his own sword. We believe it was suicide. But some say, no, we think it was accidental, and then he, he just died from the wounds. Whatever the case, the prince of Persia, representing that which opposes the work of God, this final intense conflict, this military mindset, this, this war-minded leader representing Satan and his intentions is now in the shadow of Mount Carmel, the valley Megiddo, and he dies. He comes to an end in Daniel 11. That's the context of, of Daniel chapter 11, setting up using a historical story for a real, for another very real, one day historical, but yet still to be done. That's this final conflict where Satan becomes angrier than ever before. It's the scenario of the three worthies. When they're going in, when they've resisted, when they've stayed faithful, when they've stood, Nebuchadnezzar, it says, becomes more angry, irate. His visage has changed, contorted. And that's symbolic. That represents this final intense period. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, representing Satan and his agenda, trying to, trying to get those faithful few to, to bend and budge. But they won't. Them representing that final generation that chooses to stand for God no matter the cost. And so Daniel 11 plays out this final intense push on this planet in the great controversy. 
It's not a Democrat or Republican leading the charge. It's Satan. All right. So we're not worried about who's elected into the governor's mansion here in California, or as as the word on the street is, who's recalled. It's not about that at all. But that's the context that Daniel 11 sets up, leading us right into Daniel chapter 12. Now, what does Daniel chapter 12 start with? We, we, for those of us that were studying together last night, we read this verse. At that time, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, what time? This final conflict, this Armageddon, this final battle, this intense moment where Satan goes, goes ballistic trying to destroy and accomplish as much as he can. He knows he has, for those in, 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 the, in the sports, the, in the football, it's the two-minute mark. He can't waste a second as if he ever has. I don't believe he ever has, but, but it becomes intense. And he begins to war against humanity God doesn't just, or, or Satan doesn't just hate those who follow God. He especially hates those who follow God. He hates everyone because we were created in the image of God. Just looking at you reminds him of God. And so he wages war on humanity. At that time, Michael, the great prince, will stand. Now, here's what we talked about last night. And this just, I love this part. The great prince who stands watch over your, the sons of your people will stand. That's exactly what it's meant to communicate. Here is one who's always stood for us. He's always been watching over us. And now he really stands. I don't know what that means, what that looks like in heaven. But I love the, the intensity. God has always been standing watch over the affairs of, of this planet. He's always been watching over us. Amen. But in this intense time. When the devil doubles down. God steps forward. I think he makes hell quiver. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, Michael, one who is like God, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There will be a time, and then there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Satan takes it on and says, you want, you want to go out of God? Let's go. Even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, Daniel. Everyone who is found written in the book. Daniel's people, according to to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, is everyone who's found written in the book of life. You and I are Daniel's people. When, he, when we get to heaven, we see Daniel. He's going to, hey, you're my people. And I consider it a privilege to be counted part of Daniel's people. Now, Daniel chapter 12 intentionally uses this this aggressive term, kind of this, this, this posture, standing. Because in Daniel chapter 11, 
it's one ruler after another stands. You, you read 11 and it's, well, this ruler stood and then this ruler stood and it's this, this idea of their authority. Well, Daniel chapter 12 says in this great final conflict, the Prince Michael will stand forward. There will be no question. He is unequal, unparalleled. He will stand forward as the one and only ruler of this planet. It's not the first time that we've seen Michael. He emerges as the most important character in the book of Daniel. But only recently in the last chapters is he referred to as Daniel, as Michael. In Daniel chapter 3, he's the fourth man in the base burn. In Daniel chapter 7, he's the son of man. Daniel chapter 8, he's the prince of the hosts. Then he becomes the Messiah, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 10, he's a, he's a man clothed in linen above the river. This, not Daniel, not even the final generation prophetically, but it's this person, Michael, this prince, that becomes the hero of the book. He's the one that is faithful. He's the one that is victorious above all others. At that time, Michael. Stand. He's all sweaty, already stood, but now he's going to stand. He's going to really stand. Oh. That's our God. That's our God. Now, what happens? Satan and his host are aggravated. They're angry. They're worked up. And so becomes, remember, there comes the conflict. Faithfulness will lead to conflict. Conflict will lead to a crisis. And that crisis will culminate in, in God coming through for his people. So what happens next? There's a time of distress such as not has happened upon from the beginning of the nations until now. Do you hear the language? There's a time of distress that has not ever happened since the beginning of the nations, not this nation, but any nation. There's a time of distress. And Daniel specifically places it in the context of politics. Did you catch that? He places it, he says, there will be a time of distress since there's never been a nation. Well, what context does that place it in? It places it in the civil, in the political arena. Leading one student of prophecy, Uriah Smith, to conclude that this time of distress is actually completely political, different than the time of distress that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 that will happen to the church to the, in the religious sense. Uh, most have not concluded that saying, but they do see that it's clearly indicating that this will be motivated or threaded at least through the political scene. So when we see the world around us and the politics crumbling and the sides mounting, you wanna, you may be concerned that there was fraud in a recent unnamed election. 
Really? You're so behind. Do you think that this is just something new that's kind of cooked up in politics? Someone just came up with the idea? So let's, let's see if we can sneak something or cheat our way. This is, that's not new. Come on now. Now, you, now before, lest we, lest we chase that trail, here's the point. It will only get worse. But get over it. If you're concerned, if you're mostly concerned, that that dig out according to your your preferred direction or candidate, you're putting your expectations in all, all of the places. There will be a time of Distrust in nations, since there has never been a nation, since there since since there has never been since there was a nation. A world that will become angry and violent, all sides discombobulated. At every stage, though, through the narratives of Daniel, he seemed almost indifferent. Now be careful because he was involved. Daniel himself was a politician. He served the, the earthly kingdom. But in his book, he becomes almost indifferent to who is on the throne except the throne of the universe. That was Daniel's priority. The book of life, the reference to the book of life alludes to the fact that there will be a pre-advent judgment. All it is is that allows God to, to legally identify you as one of the members listed in the book of life, and he can now stand up for you. It's your decision. It's, it's just your decision to choose him. Then he can say, they are legally mine. I have two sisters. Loma Linda must be the crossroads of the world or something. It's just incredible. <laughs> like, like, this is all roads lead to Loma Linda. <laughs> and that is the longest train ever. <laughs> but the Book of Life, it's an invitation. Choose today to serve and to be faithful. God will stand for you. It's not you winning the victory. Oh, I did it. Not at all. God says, let me win this victory for you. But you have to choose. So the, the book of life that allows him to stand up for those written in the book of life is very clear that there is an assessment, a judgment that takes place. And then there's this crisis, this time of trouble, since there's never been a nation. That seems to consume some of our fears. The book of Revelation uses this term, overcomers, that we can overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That's the power 
of Jesus and the cross that we, our lives can be molded and made as a reflection of who Jesus is because of him. But trials and crises have a way of purifying and refining us. My wife, Melanie, has been reading several of Bob Goff's books. And on a plane ride recently, she handed one to me and said, you really got to read this. Oh, Bob Goff, if you've read his work, it just, he's just a smooth writer, a lawyer, but he writes smooth. And so it's just a quick, easy read. You just kind of, you don't even have to plow, you just kind of ski through it. Well, I'm, 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 so I, I read this book on the remainder of the flight. Everybody always titles the book. Bob Goff is a pilot as well as a lawyer and a speaker and author. And he talks about being invited to, to do a presentation. And, and while most people go to Hertz or Dollar Thrifty to rent a car, he went to the airport to rent a plane. And he rents a plane. He does it. He maps it out. Okay, I can. This is how I'll go. This is the safest, smoothest way to get there. And he said he rents a jalopy. He said it was a jalopy. That's a duct tape holding the thing together. But he, he rents this plane. He flies over. He lands at the airport. It's somewhere here in, in Southern California. And he lands at the airport. And as he lands there on the tarmac, he parks the plane. He's headed for the hangar. And, and two F-16s pull up next to him. He said... He said he was wearing a Mickey Mouse t-shirt and some old jeans. And these guys get it out of their planes and they're, they're fighter pilots. I mean, they're just, he looks at their plane and looks at his plane and looks at himself and looks at them and thinks, I need to say something to just kind of bridge this thing. And so he, he kind, of, kind of shrugs up next to him and says, hey, what route did you guys take to get here? They said, well, they explained to them that they actually flew 2,000 miles to get to this airport. And when they got here, they said, we, were, however you, you approach, they said, we flew through the valleys and the canyons on our, on our approach. The canyons? Are you guys crazy? Because Bob God had spent his afternoon planning the safest and, and, and best route over the mountains. And these guys flew right through the mountains. And then they said to him, we came all this way just to fly through those canyons. Because flying through the canyons makes us better pilots. The very thing, the very things that we, that make us feel uncomfortable, that challenge us, that keep us up at night or wake us up early in the morning, the very things that, that cause us pain at times could be the, the very things that God uses to make you a better person. If you're married, uh, Thomas, Gary Thomas, did a series called Sacred Marriage. That would be worth your time. But it's painful, and none of us are are, are, we're not trying to, to, to make that, to denigrate that. It's painful. But some of us want to sail on the smooth seas. And God says, 
I've, I'm going to allow, remember, oh, this is, this. I just can't get over this, that there is an intercessor even for our suffering, that God holds some of our suffering and only allows some of it through. I don't understand why some and why not others. I don't get that. And I'm not here to pretend that I've got that part figured out. It doesn't make sense to me. But this I know. That God stands for his people. And in that final crisis. In the darkness of our pain. The long nights of hurt. He is standing for his people. And he says, I, I will use this. It's not, it's not heaven. I understand that. But I will use this time to make beautiful things in you. Revelation 12 and verse 2. I don't know how many times you've read this verse. But this verse makes my socks roll up and down. Gives me tingles on my spine. It is the clearest passage in the Old Testament on a resurrection. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Even theologians. Matter of fact, it's been said by several that there is not a single theologian that takes the perspective that there is no, that, that you go straight to heaven or hell when you die. The immortality of the soul, we would say. There's not a single theologian, Bible scholar, that can take Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and twist it any other way. They just have to skip it and say there's something clerical error here it is so clear there there are those who are resting in the grave and they will awake there will be a resurrection some to everlasting life some to everlasting damnation they have not chosen jesus the most powerful passage on the resurrection and the hope that we have comes right after Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Michael will stand for his people. God will stand for his people. There will be a time of distress. No other people group will ever have passed through this kind of turmoil as the final generation. And then Daniel doesn't miss a beat because he wants to get right to it. Hey, but just so you know, we have the ultimate hope. Death is known as the ultimate enemy. We have the hope that death itself will be defeated. If death, death is defeated, everything else will be. If God can raise the dead, he can do anything. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Read it again. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame. 
That's the NIV version. The New King James actually is just a little bit better clear on this. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Many who are in the grave will awake. Some to everlasting life and some to, to shame and everlasting that doesn't fit the biblical presentation that we know as the resurrection. We know there's two resurrections. One, resurrection of life that happens at the second coming of Jesus. And all the righteous will be resurrected. And then there's a, res there's a second resurrection, which is at the end of a thousand years. Wait a minute. Daniel chapter 2, 12 verse 2 says, many who sleep... That's not. This isn't the resurrection at the second coming of Jesus. We've just read it, so we've concluded that this is this is the rest. This oh yeah, we know what it's talking about. It's the resurrection. No. Apparently. Very clearly in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, the clearest passage in the Old Testament on a resurrection is the resurrect is a special resurrection. There is a resurrection that Jesus talks about when he says, You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And it's both sides. Apparently, there are some who have played such an important critical role in the great controversy, they will be resurrected to see Jesus come. And there will be others who played that role on the opposite side that God says, to be fair, I want you to see how this thing ends. And they are resurrected. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 is not the first or the second resurrection. It's a special resurrection sometime right before Jesus comes. Ah, oh, who's going to be a part of this? Who's going to get to see Jesus come? If I'm Daniel and God is just this God, God are you going to include me? Could it be that Daniel is going to have the privilege of being resurrected before the second coming to witness Jesus come? Well, I think that's exciting. Everybody. Everybody. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, there's a crisis. God stands for his people. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, there's a special resurrection. And then Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there. To increase knowledge. Maybe you remember it in the in the King James or the New King James. Shut up the word, seal the book, till the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And maybe in some secondary sense, this knowledge is general knowledge, 
scientific knowledge. You've heard, no doubt, you've been to a, a prophecy series where, where a speaker has said, look at, at the trajectory of, of knowledge. Just, just here. I'm a, I'm a, uh, well, we have several physicians. We have a hot Adventist hospital there in our community, but one of our physicians, after I was sharing this with him, said, look, we used to talk about how, how doctors would use leeches in their medical care. And she says to me, it's still in my books. I had no idea. But you've heard how, okay, we used to walk and then we used to ride and then we used to, and now we fly and now it's kind of this, oh, at the time of the end, there'll be this increase in general knowledge. That's not what Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 is talking about. It's using, it uses a, a, the article specifically, the knowledge, and the knowledge shall be increased. What's the knowledge of the prophecy? Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says, seal this up for a time, Daniel. But at the end, at the end, many will come back to this prophecy and study it again. And knowledge, the knowledge of this subject will be increased. And that's our invitation for the, for the final generation to open the book of Daniel again and study. Study not just the timelines and the what's and the who's and the when's, but the how's. God himself tells Daniel this material will be used to finish the work. So I have on good authority to ask you to become a student of Daniel, the book of Daniel. This, this book, this prophetic book, there's only there's one other place that that uses this language. It's in Amos chapter eight. eight. Let me read it for you. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They will wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They will run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. That's where Daniel and his companion Amos said, no, this is not, the, the running to and fro is not just for knowledge, not, not for food even. It's for the word of God. And God says, that word specifically is going to come from the book of Daniel. What does God's word do? It regenerates us. It reforms us. Second Timothy 3 and verse 15. You have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. They change our hearts. God's word changes my heart. retwist my epigenetics and adjust them. Melanie, my wife, bought me a Christmas present, a gift certificate. It wasn't a gift certificate to Lowe's or uh, to Dick's Sporting Goods, 
to Shields Sporting Goods in our area. It wasn't any of the normal things. She bought me a gift certificate to Mile High Skydiving. I'd always thought I wouldn't mind doing it once until I held the gift certificate in my hands. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it, it sucked. It sucked it right out of me. I, I, I don't have any interest in skydiving anymore. It's strange, but I'm committed to it. I'm committed to it. That one-way plane ride. So I've been doing a little bit of reading, some YouTube watching, these guys jumping out of planes, how it works. One author, I appreciate his willingness to be candid, direct, says, listen, when the parachute is pulled, if there is, it's of course attached to all those little strings, right? If one of those strings happens to get caught over the top of the parachute, you must cut the entire parachute loose. Because while one string will allow that parachute to unfold and it will appear normal. Now you're going to get the, the spiritual lesson. here. The parachute will appear normal. When it comes time to stop or to slow down, you won't be able to. At the very end of the ride, that one string will keep you from landing nice. Cut away the parachute. Pull the emergency, the backup parachute. One string in skydiving can appear like everything is okay while you're floating through the sky. But as you get close to the end, are you catching it? As you get close to the end, that one string will be your end. Why? Why does God say at the end, there's going to be a renewed effort to this book, Daniel, this, these prophecies? Why? Because he wants us to know the times better? No, because he wants the transformation to run deep and deeper into us. The, the, the attacks will become more aggressive, more direct. The time of turmoil, of distress, of trouble will be more intense. And as, the, as that becomes more intense, the invitation is to become more faithful, to gather warmth from their coldness, courage from their cowardice. Not to bend or even to compromise. Not when we say stand in the gap. We're not talking about to bridge between the wrong and the right. We're talking about to stand all the way for the right. And this is how we play it. There's lines that we've imaginarily drawn that say that's wrong and this is right. And so then we step over the line and say, Amen. I'm saved. 
God has never drawn a line in the middle. There isn't a line that says, okay, wrong, right. The invitation of heaven is to flee as far as possible from wrong and to become as holy, righteous, and faithful. It's not a question of am I, where am I on this line? We've drawn that line. God didn't draw a line. He said, no. Come all the way as far as possible. That one string playing on the line. With that one string, you know what it is. It's an addiction. An addiction is not always substance. It's your pride, your selfishness, your unwillingness to forgive. That one string over your parachute is all that Satan wants. So God says, no, don't play with it. Don't play with it. When I when I jump, and I'm just I'm waiting for the weather to get warm and the wind to be calm and, and the right day before I jump. But when I jump, of course it's a tandem jump. When when this guy, who I hope is some 300 pound nothing but muscle. Well, that's bad. No, you should be lighter. <laughs> yes, lighter. <laughs> it's a 75 75 pound kid. But whenever whoever it is pulls the parachute, you bet I'm going to be looking up and looking for just a single string over the parachute. If it's that important when we jump, what about with our eternity? Why are we playing around as if it's no big deal? Come, God says, make this serious. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13. These are the final words to Daniel as recorded in his book. It's God speaking to Daniel. And he says to Daniel, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise up to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel was promised a part in the resurrection. Now, I, I hope Daniel is part of the special resurrection in verse 2. I can't imagine God won't include him. But that's God's business. But Daniel is, is guaranteed. You go your way. You will rest. Daniel, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. But you will rise to receive your inheritance. It's almost as if it's just a pleasant goodbye. But we've got to stall just enough to look at it. Three words. Go your way. As for you, Daniel, go your way. Oh, it's just a nice, nice way to say, Daniel, just keep going. But go your way. It's in Hebrew. Is a strong statement. It, it's translated to be very nice, but it's a strong statement, a challenge. Daniel, remain absolutely faithful. Tell your death. You will rest, Daniel. 
But if you remain, if you go your way, go your way, really means absolute steadfastness, faithfulness, hold on. It's the picture that's later presented in the New Testament. Here's the patience of the saints. They keep staying faithful. This faithfulness to God is not a moment in time. It's a lifetime. It's today I choose faithfulness. And today I choose faithfulness. And today I choose faithfulness. I keep choosing. It's Paul's idea of I die daily. The final generation is not one that has a flash and then is gone. But those who will hold on to scripture and keep hanging on. Go your way. Go be faithful. I like that the book of Daniel ends that way. I think we should end every Sabbath with that invitation. Go your way. What does it mean? Go be faithful. Faithful in all that you do to Jesus who is standing for you. Jewish rabbi was known for telling his followers, repent. One day before you die. First, the question that begs the question, well, how can I know when I'm going to die? Because then I'll know when to repent. To which he would respond, well, you'd better repent every day. That's the go your way. Today, live and don't worry about, what about tomorrow? What about the big crisis? No, God says to Daniel, go your way, Daniel. And then you'll receive an inheritance. You will be in your spot. Apparently, there's a place in heaven for each one of us. The mansions, a plot, a place, a name tag at the table. Go your way. Stay faithful. Continue in steadfast. And tomorrow, if you learn something new, God convicts you of something different. God puts on your heart a change. Then stay faithful. We say to God, God, grow me. Grow me to be more like Jesus. And God says back to me sometimes, Michael, I, I got a list of things I'd like to work on with you, but you haven't even, you're not willing to touch the stuff. I already showed you. Yeah, I know, God, but I don't like that. I, can I, can I like get a new deck of cards? Can go your way. Go be faithful every day. Don't worry about tomorrow's. Go your way. And Ellen White commenting on this passage in scripture, give those words that are oft repeated. Prophets and Kings, page 578. He will never lead them otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose that they are fulfilling. All that he brings upon them in test and trial comes that they may be strong to do and to suffer for him. We, while we go our way and are just faithful in whatever God gives us today, will one day look back and say, I don't regret. I'm glad you led me through that. Nobody wishes pain and suffering, but for what came from it, I'm thankful.
Here's what I want to leave you with. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over his people will stand. God, who has always been standing for his people, will, as the final moments are ratcheted up, as the crisis becomes more intense, we call it a time of trouble, time of distress, whatever it is. The final chapter of the most prophetic book in the Old Testament says that God, who has always stood for his people, will stand up a little stronger. He will make himself known to the enemies of his people. I've got to tell you this story. It's August, August of 2002. It's not even a year after the attacks of September 11th. The Taliban government had only recently fallen for their refusal to turn over the infamous Al-Qaeda leader, Osama bin Laden. There were a lot of special operation forces in the area. One of those teams was flying, or, or rather under, the flying Captain Mike Drowley. His, his radio name, his call sign, Johnny Bravo. His role was to provide air support for 22 special op soldiers on the ground. He flew an A-10 aircraft, affectionately known as a Warthog. Just a single-seat armored plane designed to provide close air support. It's not an F-16. It's not sleek, not fast. It's a warthog. Got its name. Gets the job done. On that night in August, Johnny Bravo was doing circles high in the sky above a cloud bank that covered his men in a valley below. He couldn't see them, but he could hear on the radio that they were encountering some resistance. And then he heard their voices become more and more tense and stressed. And finally, three words that put a pilot or send shivers down a pilot's neck, troops in contact. They were receiving fire. He was their support. He was the one watching over them. And his 22 men were under fire. He couldn't see them. They were under a thick bank of clouds in the valley below. Troops in contact means that they're not just receiving fire, but they are getting pinned down even. They are in trouble. August 16, 2002, Johnny Bravo is circling high in the starry night. There for his men, but unsure of how he can help. That thick bank of clouds in the valley that they are in reduces his ability almost to nothing. He didn't have the computerized equipment on his plane to, to be able to fly into that valley. Troops in contact came to cry. 
Johnny Bravo was not ordered, was not told to go down. But he pointed his nose down into the bank of clouds. Into that valley, he counted six 1,000s, and then he knew he would have to pull up. He knew it wasn't that big. Six 1,000s, and he was going to have to pull up and pull up hard. As he dove down that one 1,000, two 1,000, he unleashed the guns in the plane. He says as he entered the valley, the entire valley was lit with the fire from the enemies on both sides of the valley, pouring down on his 22 men. Five one thousand, six one, and he pulls up sharply. He pierces again that dark bank of clouds into the star starry night, and he hears the cry over the radio. Good hits, good hits, man, keep them coming. Johnny Bravo turns his plane in a wide circle and again dives back down into that dark unknown. As he pierces through the cloud bank, again, the valley is lit with enemy fire. One 1,000, two 1,000, six 1,000. He pulls up again. Here's the cry from his guys below. Good hit. You did it again. One more time. Johnny pierces that bank of clouds and empties every round he has in his plane. Six 1,000, he pulls back up. That night, that night, Johnny Bravo lost not a single man. Not one man. 22 men went alive, that went home alive that night, and they credit it to Johnny Bravo. This is how the story ends. Our story as a final generation will end in a valley under intense enemy fire. We won't be sure how God will be able to pull it off. We'll wrestle with our soul's connection with him. God, is there anything that would keep you and me apart? It's in that moment, in this final battle, that God will demonstrate himself in ways we have never thought possible. God will not lose a single man or woman in this conflict. Not a single one. He, not we, will demonstrate abilities. Miraculous, heaven-sized miracles that will finish the work. At that time, Daniel says, the great prince who has always watched over his people will stand up as he has never stood up before. There will be a time of trouble since there wasn't a nation 
but they will see God demonstrated in ways they have never seen it possible either. The difficulty will be deepened, and so will the grace. We have nothing to fear except a heart disconnected from the one who will save us. Daniel, the final words of Daniel. But you, Michael, you go your way. You stay faithful. You, tomorrow morning, choose to die again to self and surrender to Jesus. And on Monday, do it again. And Tuesday, do it again. Stay faithful in all that you do. And you will receive your inheritance. God will not lose a single one except we choose on our own. Let it be, O oh God, that not one of us here today is lost. You won't lose us. We'll have to, to choose that ourselves. But let it be that today not one of us will be lost. Oh God, thank you for your faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.